0: A man bought his wife a brand new car one evening. The next morning she came in and said the car won't start. I think it's flooded, or water in the carburetor, or, and the man interrupted her. He said, what do you know about it? You're not an engineer. You're not even a mechanic. You don't know a steering wheel from a hubcap. And you sure don't know anything about flooding a car or a carburetor. Where's the car? I'll go out and start it. She said, the is at the bottom of the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> Which ought to tell you not to spout off before you have all the facts. Well, modernist liberals have spouted off before they have all the facts. They say, Jonah's not a real story. He's not a real person. It's a myth. Nineveh's not a real city because we've never found it. We found all kinds of cities, but not Nineveh. Well, the best friend of the Christian is the archaeologist and his spade because we have found Nineveh. And it's a great city, like the Bible says. Sixty miles around. Takes three days to walk from one end to the other. They had libraries and hanging gardens and aqueducts and all kinds of things. It was the capital of Assyria at one time. And so, like a lot of other things the modernists say, there's no such people as the Hittites. Nobody could write during the time of Abraham. They're wrong on all that stuff. And so they were spouting off before they knew what they were talking about. We're going to talk about Jonah tonight. If you want to find it in your Bible, it's between Obadiah and Micah which means I didn't help you at all. <laughs> so if you're still looking for it, go to the table of contacts, it'll give you the page. And that way I'm not finishing my message up and you still haven't found it. Jonah has only four chapters to it. And it's easy to remember. You know the story of Jonah, how God wanted him to go to Nineveh, but he didn't want to go. And so he ran, then he ended up in the belly of a fish. But then he ended up going anyway and preaching, and they all repented, but he didn't like it, so he pouted. So the way you can remember the contents of Jonah is, chapter 1, he's the prodigal prophet. Chapter 2, he's the praying prophet. Chapter 3, he's the preaching prophet. And chapter 4, he's the pouting prophet. So... Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. And in the King James Bible, the first three verses say, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Joseph rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare thereof, and went down into it to go with him unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So what we're talking about here is a rebel preacher, a man who didn't like what God told him to do. Maybe God has told you some things that you didn't want to do. Maybe you thought God must have lost his mind. I think people sometimes in the Bible thought that. If you don't believe that, ask Gideon sometimes. Or better yet, ask Jonah, because he must have thought God had lost his mind. You need to know the reasons why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. The Ninevites were a brutal, wicked people that had no mercy on their enemies. They would kill you and put your body on display. They would dismember you, cut off your nose and your ears, and they'd peel your skin off and paste it on the gates of a city and pile skulls up in front of a city just to incite terror in their enemies. And here's a cute trick. They take a captive, they cut his head off, and they take his decapitated head and hang it around the neck of another prisoner like a necklace and then parade them through the streets to show their bloodthirstiness. They didn't have great eating habits either for lunch to keep it warm. They'd take a rat and put it between the horse's legs just to keep it warm for lunch. <laughs> Boy, it got silent in here when I said that. <laughs> so, Jonah's being really practical here. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And he says, God, you can't want me to go to Nineveh. They kill people over there. If you're not a Ninevite, they're just going to use you for target practice or decapitation practice or something. You can't want me to go there and talk to those people. In fact, don't send me there to judge them. Just judge them. (laughs) Kill them all. I don't need to tell them anything. I don't even want to talk to them. There's a second reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh. It's because he thought, if I go to Nineveh and preach, and those people get saved, then you won't judge them. They'll be your children. And you know, There are just some people you want dead. (laughs) You got anybody here that you know you want dead? You don't even want to see them in heaven? You don't want them to go to heaven you don't ever want to see them? Because they messed up over you enough in this life? Makes you a double predestinarian. Some people are just predestined to go to hell. That's what Jonah felt about the Assyrians. They just ought to be predestined to go to hell. And so Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. In verse 3, we read that he fled from the presence of the Lord. Twice it says he fled from the presence of the Lord. Now Jonah's a prophet of God, He ought to know you can't flee from the presence of the Lord. I should have told you, he's not just a prophet, he's a crazy fool. (laughs) Now go ahead, think I'm being too hard on him, reserve your judgment until I'm finished, and you might change your your mind. Jonah says twice he's going to run from the presence of the Lord. He thinks he's going to run someplace and God's not going to be there when he gets there. And he ought to know better, because he's a prophet of God. In fact, he wrote, after the time of David and the Psalms, and Psalm 139, says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me and your right hand uphold me. So you can't run from me and you can't hide from me. If you say even the night shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, light and darkness are the same to him. The night shineth as the day. Night and darkness are the same. So you can't run and you can't hide. So... Jonah wants to run from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. You know, there could be people here that don't want to do what God wants them to do. God has given you some kind of a word through a sermon, through the Bible or something, and you know he wants you to do something, but it doesn't fit into your plans, and you might think God must have lost his mind to want me to do that. How many people like Brandon and sister are going to leave their house, leave their job, leave everything, go to Africa? You know, you might think God had lost his mind or something. Uh, Verse 3 says that Jonah rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. He went to Tarshish, he went down to Joppa caught a ship going to Tarsus, paid the fare, went down into the ship to flee from the promise of the Lord. I want you to notice that he said he went down to Joppa. Because any time you're running from the Lord and forsaking the Lord and being a rebel against God, you got to go down. That's the only way you can go. Even if you think you're going up, you need to know you're going down. Right? <laughs> You can run from the Lord for a while, and for a while it seems like it's okay. You're just going down and don't know it yet, right? So he's going down to Joppa, and then I want you to notice that it says that he paid the fare. He went down to Joppa, and he paid the fare. If you're going to be a rebel and run from God, you have to pick up the tab for running from God. And it'll cost you to run from God. (laughs) Running from God costs you something. It'll cost you time, cost you money, cost you friends, cost you harmony, cost you joy, cost you peace, cost you a sense of well-being, cost you harmony, unity, mental stability, it'll cost you all kinds of things that you're going to have to pick up the tab for. I've named some psalms myself. I call them psychosomatic psalms because there's elements of psychosomatic things in them. Psalm 32, especially 38, 42, and 51. They'll say things like, Your hand presses me sore. I'm bowed down. I go mourning all the day long. There's no soundness in my flesh. My bones wax old through my roaring all the day long. Your sin is continually before me. Or like David said, Your sin is ever before me. Or as David said in another place, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why am I disquieted? within me, discouraged, down in the mouth. He said, down in the mouth, you can eat peas out of a lead pipe. All these things in the Psalms, I call them psychosomatic Psalms, and they're things that if you're running from God, you're going to have to pick the tab on. How many of you know what psychosomatic means? Huh? You know, your psyche influences your body, the great word for soma, psychosomatic. Or if you're like me, or... A couple other guys I know, psychoceramic. You know what that means? That means you're a crackpot. But. <laughs> 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 so, oh, if you're going to run from God and be a rebel, then it's going to cost you something. Verse 4 says this is the ESV translation the Lord hurled a storm. He hurled a great wind on the sea, such that the storm was about to tear up the boat. It was a really strong storm. Now, I don't think this was a regular storm. I think this was a supernatural storm. Meteorologists will tell you that out there on the Mediterranean, they can get cycle levels, hurricane levels, 90 miles an hour or more. But I think this was worse than that. In fact, it says the Lord hurled the storm, so that makes it a supernatural storm right there. These sailors that were on the ship, in verse 5, says they were frightened, and they started praying everyone to his own God. That tells me they thought it was supernatural too, because they're praying to their God, not that it did any good, because there's only one God. Their gods are made of stone and wood. They got eyes, but they can't see anything. Ears can't hear, mouths that can't speak, arms that can't reach down and help anybody, legs that can't run to your aid, and they're scared out of their mind. These are professional sailors that go from Joppa to Tarshish and Tarshish to Joppa. That's how they make their living. And yet it says they were scared and afraid, and they were throwing the wares, the cargo, off the ship to lighten it so it would ride higher and get less water in there. This was their living they're throwing over. Now they go home. They don't make any money. They can't take care of their family. They have a problem, which means if you're in rebellion, you affect other people that are close to you. you got to talk to me more than that. When you're in a rebellion, it'll affect people more than yourself. Is that Right? When you're in a rebellion, you affect people more than yourself. Okay, you're a young man, got a cute little wife, got a couple little babies, and you want to run off with some hoochie mama. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to have all kinds of trouble. She might not have any skills, she might not have any money, she's got to take care of these kids, daycare costs too much. She's got all this mental anxiety and strain and tears and crying. So when you're in a rebellion, you affect other people. So verse 5 says that these sailors were scared out of their mind. They were frightened. I mean, the sky was black and lightning was flashing, and a raid was coming down, and what I call a frog choker, if that makes any sense to you. You And probably some of them were yelling to bring down the sail so it doesn't rip and get torn to shreds. Some of them were throwing the cargo off the ship. Maybe some of them were tying themselves to the ship so they wouldn't get washed overboard. They were scared out of their mind. And these were professional sailors, used to seeing storms on the sea. Probably went home and told stories about it, but this was a supernatural storm. Well, at the end of verse 5, it says that Jonah went down into the side of the ship and fell asleep. How are you going to sleep during a storm that's tearing up the whole boat? And he was fast asleep. The captain of the ship went down there and saw him sleeping. In the King James it says, what meanest this, old sleeper? You know, (laughs) I don't think so. The captain goes down there and he says, "Wake up! <laughs> Call on the name of your God to see if maybe He will think on us and deliver us from this evil." That's honest, you know. And Jonah's just there, asleep. Now that tells you something. If you're in rebellion against God and you're running from God, sometimes you can just sleep right through it. Some people can just sleep right through it. I keep thinking of your conscience being seared with a hot iron. It bothers you, then it bothers you less, and it bothers you less and less, until it doesn't bother you at all. And he can sleep right through this. If you're in rebellion to God long enough, you can get comfortable with it and sleep through it. And you can just nod. I thought I saw a couple people nodding here. <laughs> in, re- in rebellion, maybe. <laughs> just nodding. Anyway, uh, he says, Get up! Pray! This is kind of funny because the captain is a sinner, Jonah is a prophet. And the sinner is saying to the prophet, don't you think you ought to pray maybe? Don't you think be, praying would be a good idea? Get up and pray. The men were up there going crazy in the storm, throwing things overboard. And it was really hard on them. But he's down there sleeping in a storm that's designed to Punish him. Well, verse 7 says that the sailors talked to each other and decided they were going to cast lots. So they went down and they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they started asking him questions For whose cause is this evil come upon us? What's your occupation? Where are you from? Who are, your, who are your people? They wanted to know about him. He said, well, I'm a Hebrew. He started to get religious with him. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the God of heaven that created the seas and the dry land. Your God created the seas? The seas that are about to kill us? That was your God that did that? (laughs) And they told him to to do something. You know, what what can we do about this? And he said that I was running from the Lord. I was in rebellion against the Lord. And I was running, and he was tracking me down. And... It's all my fault. This evil is on us because it's all my fault. God is on me like Columbo, you know. And he's tracking me down, and the sailors say, How how are you going to do this to us? How are you going to mess us up because you want to be a fool? If you want to be a fool, be a fool all by yourself. Don't bother us. Don't bring your stuff down on me. You're just messing up everybody because you want to be a fool. And so they asked, well, what can we do? You know, tell us what to do. And Jonah said something interesting. Probably every time you heard the story of Jonah, you heard he's on the boat and somebody comes. Well, there's a new guy. Let's just throw him overboard. Not like that at all. They go to Jonah and... Jonah says, pick me up and throw me overboard. This is Jonah's idea. Pick me up and throw me overboard. Jonah's not just a rebel. He's crazy. (laughs) He's a fool. Pick me up and throw me overboard. Let me drown, kill me, and everything will be all right with you. And the sailors were real afraid, and they were crying out to God, you know, uh, save us uh, because of this man, and don't bring his blood on us uh, because of of him. They were going to throw him overboard. But in verse 13, it says they rowed the boat harder, as hard as they could trying to get it to shore. They didn't want to kill him. They didn't want innocent blood on their hands. And so they're going to row the boat to shore. But they couldn't. The harder they rode, and the harder they tried, the more God kept them in the storm. And they said, Jonah, you know, we're, we're trying to help you. We're sinners, but we're trying to help you. And uh, we know you want to die. You want to just go in a drink and, and die. And uh, they couldn't get the boat to shore because God kept them in the storm, which tells you something. It doesn't matter who your evil friends are, or who you know at the bank, or who you know downtown, or who your running buddies are, or your posse, or your your friends, it's just going to get stormier. You can't stop it. You know, at the beginning, Jonah said he wanted to die. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. I so don't want to go to Nineveh. Just kill me. And the thing about Jonah is Jonah's only four chapters. The man wanted to die every other chapter. <laughs> every other chapter he wanted to die. And you'll see in chapter four that he talked about it three times. Like just go ahead and just go ahead and kill me. So these sailors didn't want to kill him and have innocent blood on their hands, and they got back, and they told God, listen, you know, we tried to, we tried to row him to shore, but we couldn't, and if this is the man you want us to, to punish or whatever, we're going to throw him overboard, but we don't want his innocent blood on us. And they picked him up, and they threw him overboard, and as soon as they threw him overboard, the seas got calm. And quit raging. And the sailors were scared to death. And said that they greatly feared God. They made sacrifices and made vows. These sailors got saved. These sailors that were praying to their own gods are now praying to Jonah's God. You know? Isn't God great? Isn't Jonah's God great? He's the only God. And uh, we make sacrifices, and and, uh, they're praying to God. Well, if we get down to verse 17, it says that the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. I don't want you to read too much into that. It didn't say God made some special big fish to swallow Jonah. It say, actually, it says God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, one that already existed. So it goes to the big fish, and he says, uh, I got a fool drowning over here. I want you to go pick him up. And the fish said, yes, Lord. Your will, I will obey. The fish was doing what Jonah wasn't. And so the fish swallowed him up. Now, I don't want you to read too much into this, because this is no big deal. This is no big miracle. In 1891, off the Falcon Islands, there were two boats of whalers. They went out and they found a sperm whale, a huge thing, a big thing. They threw harpoons into him, and the other boat was going to go around and do the same thing on the other side. But the whale's tail hit the boat, threw the two men off. One man drowned, and the other man they couldn't find. A couple of days later, other boats came and killed the whale that had the harpoon on They drug him up to shore. They slit him open. And inside, the man that they couldn't find, the fish had swallowed. And the man was unconscious, but he was still alive. And after, you can pull this up off the internet. It's a true story. And after some care, the man was fine. So this is no big deal. It's not a great miracle. It can happen again. In fact, there's a certain kind of shark that was big enough to house a man. They found one that had swallowed a horse. So it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a miracle. People read the Bible and say, oh, that don't make sense. Well, it happened, and it could happen again. You see, the big miracle is not that a fish swallowed a man. The miracle is that the fish listened to the Lord. You know, it's funny how things are backward at Jonah, because Jonah didn't want to listen to the Lord. The sailors were heathen listened to the Lord. He goes to Nineveh, all them wicked, evil people, they listened to the Lord. The fish listened to the Lord, but Jonah wouldn't listen to the Lord. He's a prophet. I don't even make sense, (laughs) but that's what happened. So the fish swallowed up Jonah. Jonah thought he was going to die. God said, I'm not done with you yet. I told you to go to Nineveh. <laughs> I didn't say you could die today. I didn't tell you to die today. You can just die anytime you want to. You have to go to Nineveh. And so at the end of chapter 1, the fish swallowed him up. Now, as Brandon said last week, the chapter headings aren't part of the Bible. So where it says chapter 2, just ignore that. Go right from chapter 1 and go right into chapter 2. He says the big fish swallowed up uh, Jonah... Then, somebody say then. Then Jonah prayed. Jonah ain't prayed yet. He didn't pray when he was running. He didn't pray when they were throwing him over the ship. He didn't pray during the storm. He hasn't prayed yet. But now, Jonah's praying out of the belly of the fish. Now, chapter 2 is... The praying prophet. We see he's the prodigal prophet. He's running in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he's the praying prophet. He's inside the fish, and he's praying. And it says, Out of the belly of the fish he prayed unto the Lord his God, and he cried cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Down in verse 7, he said that his heart fainteth within him, and he remembered the Lord, and he prayed to him, and the Lord heard him even in his holy temple. And now towards the last two verses, it said that he made sacrifice with his lift to the Lord and paid to keep his vow and said salvation is of the Lord. Now, in between those verses in chapter 2, there's at least 11 allusions to the Psalms and two other poetical books. So Jonah knew his Bible. That's why he should have known Psalm 139. You can't run from God. And so he knew his his Bible. And at the end of that, it says that he was thrown up on the shore. He vomited him up on the shore. I'll come back to that. That's not what I'm wondering about. I'm confused. I don't get it. I don't understand. I thought the last time we saw you, you were out in the middle of the ocean. But now he's taken you and vomited you up on dry land. That means that while you were in the fish, the fish was carrying you somewhere. Your judgment was taking you somewhere. But where was his judgment taking him? Where was the fish taking him? He was taking him from the sea to dry land. But the dry land he was taken to him wasn't Nineveh. Because the Bible tells us later he still has to go to Nineveh. So where was the fish taking him from sea to dry land? But the only other dry land you can run into there is Joppa. The fish was taking him back to dry land, but the dry land wasn't Nineveh. So where's the fish taking him? It's taking him back to the point of his disobedience to the point of his departure. And he said, what are you going to do now, Jonah? You going to buy another ticket to Tarshish? Or have we you reconsider the matter? And so, chapter 2 is his prayer, but chapter 3, where he is now, is the preaching prophet. It says that the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Now that's good news. Because God will repeat himself. God's a God of second chance. And he said, in case you didn't hear me the first time, or in case you didn't get it, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim the message that I'm going to give you. He didn't give him the details. And then have him go. He says, go, and then I'll give you the details. That's what we do. We say, God, just give me all the details. I'll let you know if I want to go or not. God says, go, and then I'll give you the details. Because he wants to teach you to walk by faith. See, So, chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh, that great city. And he walks. A mile into it, and he starts preaching. He says, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Yet forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It's a short message. In fact, in Hebrew, it's only five words. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Now that's good news and that's bad news. The bad news is Nineveh's gonna be destroyed. The good news is You've got 40 days to turn this around. See, God's judgment, God's chastisement, it's bad news and it's good news. The bad news is this is going to start hurting. You're going to have to start picking up the tab, maybe. But the good news is it's not too late. You still have time. That sounds like repentance. If you have time to repent, then it's not too late, you see. Repentance means a change of mind. It usually results in a change of direction and action and like that. If you have time to repent, it's not too too late. So you have 40 days and Nineveh will be uh, destroyed. But the clock is ticking. That's why the Bible talks about the cup of God's wrath is filling up. I'm not talking about God's wrath for Christians because we're not appointed unto wrath. But the cup is filling up, and time is almost out. I don't know if you ever had a teenager that was acting bad, acting up. And like a lot of parents, they don't do something every time he does it. But neither do they forget. They remember it. And so... The parent is standing there watching their son, and they're saying, "Yeah." OK, go ahead. I'm watching you, yeah. Go head on, Presley. <laughs> I see you doing that. The kid is building up judgment. And when that thing falls, I heard about a preacher who got his kid, kept doing the same thing. He's watching him, and it's building him up. And he decided he's going to apply the Board of Education to the seat of learning. And he says, this is what you shouldn't have done right now. And this is what you should have done last week. And this is what you should have done a year ago. And I remember when you were a baby, you did this. (laughs) But the guy's accumulating judgment. It reminds me, actually, of a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he's talking about lost people and sinners, and every time they sin, it's like a wave, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it gets up into a tsunami, but that thing's going to fall, because it's going to be payday someday. It's going to fall, and they'll start paying the tab. So anyway, 40 days, and then it shall be destroyed, but it's not too late. The clock is ticking, it's getting right down there. None of evil has come up before me, but it's almost time for him to, to pay the price. But for people, if God is dealing with you, it's not too late for you. But the clock is ticking. I hesitated to tell this story, but I think I will. You won't laugh when I'm done. <laughs> We had a girl come to our house and want to rent a room downstairs. She was a really nice, sweet girl. She was about 40 years old, and her face was white as a sheet. She looked sick. Somebody told me later she had problems with her liver. My guess was cirrhosis of the liver, like she drank a lot, and she was a really nice, sweet girl. We rented her to the room. A couple days later, I went down and knocked on the door. She said, came in, I w- walked in, She was covered up. I said, how you feeling? How you doing? And I told her, I said, you know, I'd like to take you up on the upper deck tomorrow, and we'll sit in the sunshine, and we'll drink some iced tea. And I want to tell you a story. I think you'll like it. I think it'll help you make you feel better. Storytelling is a method of evangelism that a lot of people haven't heard about. She said, yeah, that sounds great. I'd like to do that. She was enthusiastic. She was all up for it. So I left. Well, that night she called nine one one, and they came and they got her and they took her to the hospital and she came back the next day and I went down, knocked on the door. She said, come in. And I said, how are you doing? She wasn't feeling too good. I said, well, maybe tomorrow if you're feeling okay, we'll go up on the deck. We'll sit in the sunshine. We'll drink some iced tea. I'll tell you a story. It'll make you feel better. I think you'll really like it. She said, "Yeah, I want to do that." She was all enthusiastic about that. Well, that night, she stumbled into the bathroom, and on the cold tile floor, with her head near the toilet, all alone, she died. <laughs> Alone. Nobody holding her hand. She stepped out into eternity without God, without healing, help, hope, or heaven, because time had run out. Because you never know. The Bible says, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It's just quick. As fast as an eagle chasing its prey, that's how quick it's over. Bible says it's like a bottle of spilt milk, like, oop, it's over, it's done. You can't stop it. It was over, and it was done for her. And the reason I feel bad is because I know what the Bible says. It says, today is the salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. But it was too late. I did what I could, but every time I think about it, it makes me feel bad. She just didn't have time. It wasn't quick enough. So Jonah was preaching, and in verse 5, he says he went down to uh, the city, and it says that the people believed God. That's not enough information. I mean, give me more information than that. All the people believed God. And it says that they declared a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And that the word got all the way up to the king, who got off his throne took off his royal robe, dressed himself in sackcloth, sat in the ashes, and he declared a proclamation. He said, It is declared by me and the nobles that neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock shall eat anything or drink anything, but let every man and beast put on sackcloth and let him cry mightily to God. Yea, let them turn from their wicked ways, and from the wickedness of their hands. And if he does that, maybe God will relent of the sore displeasure he's got, and we will be saved. And that happened. They repented, they got saved. God did it. This is the greatest revival in the history of the world. This is the only time in the Bible and the only time probably in history where a whole city got saved at once. This was the best revival, like the greatest revival in the history of the world. It's never happened before. The greatest revival you've ever seen in the history of the whole history. The people repented. The king repented, the nobles repented, and he says, tell your animals to repent, put them in sackcloth and ashes, I want the animals to repent, I want the dog on his knees, I want the cow on his knees, I want the cattle on his knees, I want the sheep on their knees, put them all in sackcloth and ashes, because we want God to know we mean business with this repenting stuff. And so they repented, the whole town got saved. Well, if we get to the preaching prophet, he didn't like it at all. Before we get there, i got to tell you something. As I get older, I don't want to just preach and answer questions you're not asking. I don't want to just tell you three poems and a dog story. I want to give you something that will help you in your life. We got through Jonah's prayer. But I want to take you back to the beginning of it. Verse 2, it says... He prayed by reason of affliction unto the Lord. He was afflicted. Now, Jonah's in the belly of the fish. He's underwater. How many of you think he had affliction? He had hard times. He had troubles. He had adversity. Who would agree with that? Somebody talk to me. Amen. Right? So he was afflicted. Now, you think that affliction does him any good? You think anything can be done with this affliction? Now, I've got to tell you something. People like to blame God for everything, or they believe the devil. Like Flip Wilson, his church of what's happening now, the devil made me do it, (laughs) right? But there's somebody else, there's the guy walking around inside your clothes. A lot of times you do things to yourself. If you get drunk and you're walking and fall down and bust your head on the curb, God didn't do that to you. The devil didn't do that to you. You did that to your own self. You know, if you sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh, corruption— That's what the Bible says. So a lot of the things I say sound hard, like God is mean, but God is not a mean God. People say, well, the God of the Old Testament is mean, the God of the New Testament isn't, but that's not the case. I want you to know God isn't chasing you around with a big stick. The goodness of God leads to repentance. And all the stuff that's going to happen to Jonah, he brought on himself. And he says, I was afflicted, So I cried unto the Lord. This affliction he brought on himself. Is there any good in affliction? What good does it do? Well, God has a school of affliction. Because you can learn more from hard times than you can with easy times. He has a school of affliction. He has the university of adversity. Because he wants to teach you something. Somebody wrote one time, I walked a mile with pleasure... She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she. But all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. The world doesn't understand this. You Christians, you say, oh, you go through hard times. Thank God for the hard times. They don't know the song. You know, thank you for the valley I walked through today. Today. The darker the valley, the more I learned to pray. Thank you for every hill I climbed, for every time the sun didn't shine. Thank you for the valley I walked through today. The world doesn't know that song. Thank you for every lonely night. I prayed till I knew everything was all right. The world doesn't know that song. And so, God has a school of affliction. Now, the Puritans say, Jonah was asleep on the ship, but he prayed out of the belly of the fish. Is that right? Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. you got to get that. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've kept thy word. Before Jonah was afflicted, he was asleep on the ship, but now that he's afflicted and in the belly of the ship... He prayed. So is there any good for affliction? Yeah, if it'll make you pray. <laughs> we have all these afflictions, hardship, trials, and all that, and we leave God out. We don't see it. We're sleeping like, like Jonah was. We have all these things happen, and we're feeling bad. We're feeling down. We're feeling like God's hand is pressing us sore, and uh, we're depressed. We don't understand it. We go talking to everybody around, talking to all of our friends, maybe even a counselor. The Bible says the arm of flesh will fail you. You know, you should be looking up. David said, I looked to my left, I looked to my right, and no man cared for my soul. Well, David, look up. You're looking in the wrong direction, see? The Puritans would say, when God puts a man on his back, he does it so that he'll look up. So is there any good for affliction? Yeah, if it'll make you pray, if it'll make you look up. David learned to look up. In Psalm 42, twice, he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why aren't thou disquieted within me? He's all down in the mouth. He's discouraged. He could eat peas out of a lead pipe. You know, he's down in the mouth. But then twice, he said, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. And he praised God. He learned to, to look up. Also, sometimes the Puritans would say, when I'm in a cellar of affliction, I look for God's choicest wine. In other words, when you're in the cellar of affliction, look for the good things. People murmur and gripe and complain and like that. And sometimes when affliction comes and hard times come and all that, they have to just stop and think, I should just stop and count my blessings. When you're in the cellar of affliction, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. So is there any good in affliction? Yeah, if it'll cause you to count your blessings. What about if you're wandering from God? What if you're just backslidden? is all get out. My neighbor is here at night, Judy, has a border collie. That's a sheepdog. You ever seen a sheepdog work? It's great. The sheep scatter from the flock. They're heading for danger. And the sheepdog goes out and he rounds them all up. Gets them back into the flock, nipping at their heels, barking, and gets them back in. The Puritans used to say, when the hounds of heaven come after you, it's not to devour you, it's to bring you back. When the hounds of affliction come after you, it's to bring you back. Is there any good in affliction? Yeah, if it'll make you look up, if it'll make you pray, if it'll bring you back, if it'll make you count your blessings. The period you used to say that affliction is God's megaphone. You've seen people that are in the hospital. They're going through an operation, a man, a woman. They're not even sure if they're going to make it through. They might die. They get them in recovery, and they're still not sure. They said, boy, I could die. They're starting to hear God's megaphone. They say, God, if you just get me through this, if you just heal me, as soon as I hit the bricks, I want to be a fanatic for Jesus, whether they mean it or not. (laughs) You know how that goes. They're starting to hear God's megaphone. I think Richard Our music man heard God's megaphone. They wanted to hire him here as the music guy. And he said no. He refused it. A few days later, he cut his hand really bad. He lost all the feeling in his fingers. He thought he'd never play the guitar again. And he told God, if I get the feeling back in my fingers, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I think he heard God's megaphone. (laughs) And guess where he is now? (laughs) He's here. We don't know how beholden we are to affliction. The Puritans would say, God will put a hedge around you, keep you from falling over a cliff. This has to be a personal example because I don't know a, b- a better one. I got saved in a juvenile hall, and as soon as I got out, I joined a youth group. I started preaching at youth rallies, inspirations, uh, churches, rescue missions, convalescent homes and like that. Then I went four years to the first year of Bible college. I was the youth director and did all the stuff I was supposed to. But then I said to myself, all my goals have been spiritual and educational. I don't have any financial goals. So I got into real estate and people say I'm obsessive and compulsive and you'll believe that in a minute. (laughs) I'd get one house and I want three. I get three and I want five. I get five and I want eight. And I was like 25, 30. And I ended up with 15 houses in one year, condos and commercial buildings in one year. And against all logic, I said, God, I feel like I'm being held back. Everything I touched turned to gold. I wrote a book on No Money Down Real Estate. I taught seminars. Everything I touched turned to gold. I ought to be a millionaire by now, but I'm not. I felt like I was held back. And It was so palpable. Like I could feel it, that something was holding me back. And I didn't know what it was. But you know, the Bible says that there's nothing wrong with money, but it's dangerous. And God knew me well enough that if he gave that guy walking around inside my clothes a whole bunch of money, he'd just get in trouble and go over the cliff. See? I didn't understand at the time why I felt I was held back. and It was almost like I could feel it. I look back now. And I know, you know, Uh, right now I'm, I'm blind. You know that Uh, personal, I'm blind. I can't, I can't hardly see. I've got 10,000 books on the Bible that I can't read. Now you know I'm obsessive, right? I got 10,000 (laughs) books. I can't read them. I can't read the computer. I can't read notes. I can't read the Bible. That's why I don't have any here. I should be discouraged. I'm afflicted. I'm in trouble. I have adversity. I deserve to be downcast, disquieted in my spirit. So I go to Richard, go to Brandon, talk to Dr. Bravo. I said, I don't know, I've done this 55 years or so. Maybe it's time for me to quit. Run up the flag, throw in the towel, say I've had enough, can't take it anymore. You know, stick a fork in me. I'm done. And they said, no. You know stuff. And I thought, well, that's right. Dr. Bravo, he's crippled in a wheelchair. He can't walk. He has a hard time talking. He's blind and he teaches a Bible study. I thought, yeah, yeah, he can do that. I can do something like that. And then I thought, God said the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. I thought, I already told God, I'm going to preach until I die. I didn't tell you to die today, you know. (laughs) You get to die whenever you want to and quit whenever you want to. And so, and so I didn't. But you know, every pancake has two sides. On one side of the pancake, it looks like I'm afflicted. I'm in adversity. I'm having trouble. And I do. But there's another side of the pancake that's really great and bright. God teaches me new things. I always hated being tied to notes and tied to a pulpit because I like to walk around and stuff like that. I don't have to do it anymore. It won't do me any good. I can't read anything anyway, you know. And there's just things that are better that God has teached me and like that. And brighter and brighter into the the future. Uh, I'll say it like this. I saw a blind man tapping along, making his way as he passed through the throng. I said, my friend, I feel sorry for you. He said, well, up in heaven, I'll see just like you. Now, in case you haven't noticed, I messed that up a lot. (laughs) No, I didn't. He was a blind man tapping through the thing. And and when I get to heaven, I'll see just like you. I'll see all my friends in Hallelujah Square. What a wonderful time we'll all have up there. We'll sing and praise Jesus. His glory will share. And you'll not see one blind man in Hallelujah Square. So in the future, that's good. Dr. Bravo, if you're back there, I can't see you, but. (laughs) I saw a cripple dragging his feet. He couldn't walk like we do down the street. I said, my friend, I feel sorry for you. But he said, up in heaven, I'll walk just like you. I'll see all my friends in Hallelujah Square. What a wonderful time we'll all have up there. We'll sing and praise Jesus, his glory we'll share. And you'll not see one cripple in Hallelujah Square. Come on, Dr. Bravo, you always give us an amen. amen. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Nobody said the Christian life was easy. There's a path stroller with rose petals, a few thorns along the way. So we have thorns, afflictions, hardships, adversities, and all that. Everything isn't smooth the way we want it. There's resistance. Um, You know, without resistance, you couldn't walk on this earth. You need the resistance of gravity. You couldn't ride in a boat. You need the resistance of water. You couldn't fly in a plane. You need the resistance of the air, you see. And so a lot of things in this life are hard. But we have to see God in the situation because he's on our side. But we don't understand Where's God? We're going through all this stuff, and where's God? We don't see Him. We don't know what He's doing. There was a boy that made himself a boat, and he was proud of it. A little boy, and he went out to the water, and he started sailing, and he got out farther. He couldn't reach it. He was losing his boat, and he was freaking out. He saw a bigger boy off to the side, and he called him for help. The bigger boy came over, and without saying a word, he picked up a rock and chucked it out of his boat. And the boy was going crazy. What are you doing? I thought you were helping me. I thought you were on my side. And he watched, and as the man threw rocks out, they went a little bit over the boat and splashed and made ripples and brought the boat closer to closer to the shore. See, the boy was freaking out. He didn't understand. I thought this guy was on my side. I thought he was my friend. He didn't understand that the guy was there to help him. He was on his side. And that's what we do with God. We don't see God in it. (laughs) And we say, where's God? But he's helping us, but we don't see it, we're all upset. There's a lady driving up the freeway in a car. This great, big old 18-wheeler comes up right next to her, paralleling her, going down the road. She doesn't like that at all. You've seen these truckers. They can look down and see everything in your car, like God looking down from heaven, paralleling in the car, and she doesn't like it, so she speeds up. Well, the truck moves in right behind her, a foot behind her, tailgating her. And so she went faster, And when she went faster, the truck went faster, and she was getting all upset and frightened, scared. And every time she accelerated, the truck accelerated. She went faster and faster. The truck went faster and faster, staying right on her bumper all the time, tailgating her. She saw a gas station up ahead, so she was going to race into that gas station, go in and get help. She pulls into that gas station really fast and the trucker is still on her bumper right behind her, pulling in the gas station right right behind her. She gets out and runs for the gas station. The man gets out of the truck and runs. But he stops at her back door. He opens it up and jerks a man out. that was hiding behind her seat to rob her, kill her, rape her, who knows what? She didn't understand at all what was going on. And that's what we do. We don't see God's on our side. This big truck was on our side. The boy with the boat had a bigger boy that was on his side. Somebody better say amen. We have a big God, right? He's large, and he's in charge. And he's on our side. And he's helping us with all these afflictions, hardship, trials. It says in Philippians 1.6, It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's working in you. Where's Nissel, her favorite verse? I heard her say it one time. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Is that close, is that close enough, Nissel? You're not a finished project. You're under construction. And God is working on you all the time. And he's on your side. See? So... You see in chapter 1, the prodigal prophet, chapter 2, the praying prophet, and that's easy to see. Chapter 3, the preaching prophet, and everybody got saved. But Jonah didn't like it. Jonah's got a problem. Instead of verse 1 that he was mad, he was exceedingly angry about it. And he prayed to God. And told him, he says, I knew you were going to do this. I'm paraphrasing. He said, when we were in our, my own country, you know, that's why I ran, ran away. Because I, I knew how you were. I knew you were going to do this. If I went there and preached, I know you and how you're going to be. He said, I knew you were a God of grace. You were a God of mercy and slow to anger and kindness. And if I went there, they're liable to repent and get saved. And he didn't like that at all. And so he prayed to God again. All these people get saved, I don't like it. Kill me. <laughs> he's talking about dying again. He's got, a, he's got a problem. You know, he didn't like it that they got saved. Uh, I'm glad the clock's not on here because now it's not my fault. Uh, anyway, I got to shorten this somehow. So everybody got saved, and he didn't like it, and... God was trying to teach him all kinds of lessons. God, said, you didn't want these people to get saved. He he went out to the east of the city, and uh, God said, do, "Doest thou well to be angry?" You know, in other words, you have a right to be angry. And he talks about dying against. Yeah, I do right. I could be angry enough to die. You know. And God, said, you like it when I did things for you. He went outside of the east of the city, and he was going to sit there, build himself a booth, a lean-to, a shelter and watch Nineveh, hoping that God would bring judgment on them, that their repentance wasn't real. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, he just wanted God to make them crispy critters, you know? And it says he made a booth. Well, in verse 6, chapter 4, it says God appointed a plant to grow up over it, and it gave Jonah shade, and Jonah liked that shade and that comfort. He was exceedingly glad for it. Well, in verse 7, it says God appointed a worm. And it attacked the plant the next morning, and it died. It smoked the plant, and it withered. Verse 8 says, The next morning when the sun came up, God caused a scorching wind to come down and beat on Jonah's head until he fainted. He almost fainted. So he prayed to God, guess what, to die it's better for me to die than to live. That's the second time he said that. And so God said, you know, you liked it when I did everything for you, but you don't want me to do anything for Nina. There's 120,000 children over there. that don't have their right hand from their left. With their parents, with probably 500,000. You liked it when I did something for you, but you don't want me to do something for anybody else. You want me to just kill them. You want them dead. You don't have my heart. And... God is trying to teach him lessons. And he does it by appointment. You know, he appointed a great fish. He appointed the the vine. He appointed the worm. He appointed the scorching wind. And he's trying to teach him something by appointments, uh, which I won't go into. But sometimes God is trying to teach us stuff by appointments. I believe in divine appointments. Maybe there's somebody at work that you're supposed to talk to or something you're supposed to do, and it's like a divine appointment, and sometimes you feel it. After church one time, I was in a Jack-in-the-Box and sitting there, and there was a guy sitting over there. There was only one over there. And I felt like a divine appointment. Like I was supposed to go talk to him, give him a track, invite him to church. But I didn't do it. I left, I got in my car, and I got a mile and a half away. And I turned around, I had to go back. It was just on me. And I went and I talked to him, and I gave him the track, and I invited him to church. But it felt like it was a divine appointment. I was walking through a hospital one time, and this couple was against the wall, leaning and crying. I felt like I got to talk to him. And I did, and prayed with him, and like that. God's trying to teach Jonah stuff by appointments, but he wants to die, like I said. Why is God messing with Jonah? Why don't He leave him alone? God is messing with Jonah, and he's going to mess with him until he grows him up spiritually. And sometimes God is going to mess with us until we grow up spiritually, you know? Well, I'm going to jump to the end. The end of Jonah in chapter 4 is not the end. I think it ends in Matthew 12, real quick, where the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, we require of you a sign. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. But no sign is going to be given to you except that of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. The Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. The men of Nineveh are going to rise up against this generation in the judgment because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And a greater than Jonah is here right now. And you're not repenting. See? He's going to teach them a couple lessons. First of all, we can know that Jonah's real because Jesus referred to him as a real person and all that. But secondly, he's going to teach him something. He says, you know, you all want a sign, but you don't want a sign. You just want me to do something else. Just do something else because you just want to find another reason to reject me. See, he said, well, I'll give you a sign. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, I want to be in the heart of the earth. And when Jonah came out of the fish, he preached repentance in Nineveh and it changed him. When I come out of the earth, a greater than Jonah is here. But that's not the good news. If that rebel preacher could preach and make changes in Nineveh, what kind of changes can I make when I come out of the grave? When I'm the perfect son of God, the perfect Savior, that raised from the dead. Jonah didn't even die. I was buried and raised again. If that rebel preacher could take the simple message and turn Nineveh around, surely the Son of God can turn you around. If that rebel preacher could make evil Nineveh change, surely Jesus Christ can make evil you and me change. If that rebel preacher with a psychologically messed up could do stuff, surely Jesus, who's sane and sound, can help you. If that Old Testament madman can do all this stuff, surely the New Testament son of God man can do a lot more. He can change your life. He can get rid of your afflictions, your hardships, your trials, because a greater than Jonah is here. Now, I'm sure I'm too long. I gotta tell you one more thing. I just feel like I gotta tell you. Hey, Paul said finally four times. What do you want? <laughs> yeah. Jonah is the type of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. In the poetic language of chapter two, Jonah died, went down to Sheol, which is hell. He went down below the mountains. The vines were wrapped around his head. He went down in the heart of the earth. He said, the bars were holding me. And he said, God brought him up without corruption. Remind me of the Messianic Psalm. He will not suffer his holy one to see corruption. Speaking of Jesus. So Jonah went down to hell and came back. I believe that Jesus, when he died, went down to Sheol. Went down to hell. That half is Abraham's bosom. The half some people call paradise. And he took all the Old Testament saints, and he took them with him to heaven. It said he that descended is the same that ascended, and he led captivity captive. And he took them all to heaven. So Jonah went down to hell and came back. Jesus came down to hell and came back. Now it has been imagined that the devil was going to get Jesus and keep him down there because he's going to get him in a wrestling match. Because Jesus has to be weak. They pushed a crown of thorns on his head till he bled profusely. They ripped out his beard and spit on him and slapped him. They lacerated his back with a whip down to the bone. They put a heavy cross on him and made him climb up Golgotha's hill and he buckled under the weight. Then they put him on that cross and they... Nailed his hands in his feet, and then they lifted him up and dropped him in a hole, ripping his hands in his feet. They left him there suspended between heaven and earth, to die of thirst. They came and they shoved a spear in his side until he bled, seeing his hands his feet. You know, sorrow and love flow mingled down, we sing that song. So the devil thought he's weak. The devil's going to get the Son of God down there. He wants him down there because the devil's going to be there forever. So let's get Jesus down there and keep him there. Let's get every lost sinner down there and keep him in this place of abiding wrath and blackness and darkness and crying and everlasting punishment and filthiness and gloom and hopelessness and indignation. That place of keeping where it's a lake of fire and there's no memories where there's no hope, no love, no joy, no peace, there's never a kind word, never a cool water, but only oblivion, pain, quandary, restitution, shame, thirst, ungodliness, vengeance, woe, excusing, yearning, and zero existence. The dungeon of the damned, an asylum of agony and madness. He wants Jesus there. He wants us there because he thinks Jesus is going to be weak. If I'm ever going to get the son of God, if I'm ever going to get the son of man, this is it. But you know, I'm about done. The Bible has names for Jesus from Alpha to Omega. We call him our our advocate, the beloved son. Christ, the chiefest among 10,000, the deliverer, the day spring, the desire of all nations. Emmanuel, our friend, God. And so the devil thinks he's going to get him down there because he's weak. And him and all his whole hearts, he wants to wrestle with him. And for a minute, they think our advocate is about out. The beloved son is beaten. Christ is crushed. The deliverer, the dayspring, the desire of all nations, is down and doom and done. Emmanuel had had enough. Our friend, the faithful and true, was finished. God was about gone. But then, as we sing on Easter morning, up oh! from the grave he arose. Amen. With a mighty triumph o'er his foes, he rose the victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, like an arrow shot out of hell, he arose. And he arose with resurrection power. And he said, because I live, you can live. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living simply because he lives and because a greater than Jonah is here, Amen. Lord. You said your word doesn't return unto you void. Let your Holy Spirit do His work in every heart and life, and let everyone respond.